Greetings, brothers and sisters. Before we begin, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. Prepare our hearts so that we would incline our hearts to hear your word, to respond to it, to obey you in all things. Help us, Lord, for our hearts are stubborn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you denied Jesus before? Back when I was working outside, I had a colleague who had strong opinions about everything. He thought that people who believe in religion are stupid and he was quick to make fun of religious faith. So one day, he happened to find out that I went to church on Sunday and he asked me with concern, Hey Dinesh, you actually go to church? I didn't want him to think less of me, so I just said yes. There are lots of good social opportunities to meet people there after all. Now, I may have admitted that I go to church, but I have downplayed the importance of church and made it about making friends rather than about church being the place where we come to sit under the teaching of the word, about the gospel or about the lordship of Christ. And I did this so that he won't think I am foolish. So in this way, even though I said, yes, I attend church, by qualifying my statement, I make it about other things and not about Jesus. And for all intents and purposes, that is a form of rejecting Jesus, isn't it? Well, friends, in today's passage, we see Peter rejecting Jesus. And it's helpful for us to think about how this can look like in our own lives. So let's keep this at the back of our minds as we go through our passage today. We begin our passage today by revisiting verses 12 to 14. We see in verse 12 that Jesus has been arrested by a band of soldiers. We see a group of people gathered here from soldiers to their captains to officers of the Jews, all for the sake of arresting Jesus, who had been teaching people to turn the other cheek, to show compassion and love to others. What is even more shocking is that they then bind him like a common criminal, which shows us that while we have not seen Jesus do anything bad, he is already being treated as if he is a criminal. This isn't an inquiry, it's a clear arrest to bring him to trial. Though there has been no mention of any charges or any wrongdoings by Jesus. Of course, if we have been paying attention to what the Pharisees have been saying all along, we will realize that this is exactly what they have planned. And they have murder on their agenda, regardless of Jesus' innocence. So then we see in verse 13 that after arresting Jesus, they brought him in the cover of darkness to the house of Annas. Annas was the former high priest and it is his son-in-law Caiaphas who was the high priest. At this point, we must wonder, what is the point of these details? Why does this trial that is about to take place describe in this way? Is there anything deeper for us to dig in? Firstly, we know from the context that this happens at night. For a legitimate trial, the court of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, needs to be assembled legally. And this can only be done in the morning. Yet, this unofficial trial is happening at night, implying that something is wrong. Secondly, 
we see that Anas, who is no longer the high priest, but the former high priest, here he is acting as a ringleader who has influence over the Sanhedrin. He is able to do this because the office of high priest has become a political tool that is influenced by Anas. So because of this, an illegal trial can now be held to try a man who has done nothing wrong. This clearly shows us that the Sanhedrin has abandoned any pretense of following the Torah to do justice and are doing their will for the sake of political expediency and not for justice. In fact, what they are planning is an unjust murder. Now for those who are familiar with the beginnings of John, there's an echo here of how Jesus was portrayed in chapter 1 as the light that came to the world to shine in the darkness. And here we see exactly a picture of the darkness that Jesus comes to shine in, one of injustice of evil men willing to even do murder as they follow their father Satan. However, we also see here that God is in total control. And this is why the author points out in verse 14 that the current high priest Caiaphas has spoken earlier with words of prophecy without even realizing it when he declared that it is better that one man Jesus should die for the sake of the people. Even in his unjust declaration, he points towards the plan that God had made, that Jesus is to die for the sins of many, so that Israel can come to salvation through the cross. And through that, many come to salvation. While they meant evil, God meant it for good. So, wedged in together in this picture of Jesus as a light that is shining in the midst of darkness, is the reminder that the darkness has not overcome the light. No matter what happens here, ultimately, it is God who is in control and has led events to come here. And this is why scripture teaches us that Jesus willingly lays down his life. He was not helpless, but rather he allowed this to happen. God is in control. And you know what the significance of that is? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This then is a comfort, despite how this trial seems like a victory of those who are on the side of evil. God is in full control, as we will see more clearly, as we fully go through the passions of Christ to the cross and then the resurrection. God is in control because of Jesus' faithfulness unto death, which led to Jesus being raised up and seated on high with all power and authority. But... In light of this oppressive darkness that's being expressed here, what can faithful men do when so discouraged by the seeming victory of evil? The scene then shifts to the outside of this mock trial and we see the human response as we come to the next section. We come to verse 15 and we see that Simon Peter and another disciple who have followed Jesus, while all the other disciples have dispersed and ran away, and now, the other disciples' identity is not clearly revealed, but there is some evidence to suggest that this is John, the son of Salom, who is linked to the priestly caste, and this may be why this disciple is known to the high priest. Now, Simon Peter had boldly declared in John chapter 13, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And here we see that unlike the other disciples who have run away, 
He is keeping true to his word so far and has followed Jesus, likely out of his concern to find out what is going to happen to Jesus who was taken so suddenly under the cover of darkness. However, we see in verse 16 that Peter seems to be stuck outside the door since he didn't have any special connection unlike the other disciple. This other disciple, realizing this, went and told a servant girl who watches over the door to bring Peter in. So in verse 17, we see her coming to Peter. But interestingly, before she lets him in, she asks Peter this, You also are not one of this man's disciple, are you? She was probably scandalized that there was already one disciple inside the palace, inside the place, and, and now he's asking for someone else to be let in. So she asks Peter this question with the hope that he will say, Of course not. He just wants to see what's happening. He's here for the show. And Peter, always bold and strong then, proudly confesses his allegiance to Jesus before the, oh wait, actually that isn't what he says, is it? He told her, I am not. This should be shocking to us, isn't it? This was the brave Peter who declared that though everyone abandons Jesus, he won't. The same Peter who cut off the ear of one of the guards when they came to capture Jesus. Suddenly, he seems to have lost his conviction and feeling pressured by the fear of sharing in the suffering of Jesus, he denies Jesus here. Now, having cut off the ear of the guard, he is probably afraid of getting into serious trouble despite Jesus healing the ear. While the other disciples could have just said that they did not do anything wrong, Peter can't do the same, can he? Interesting, isn't it? Think about it. Peter's denial of Christ here stems ultimately from his action that goes against what Jesus thought about not living by the sword to turn the other cheek. It is driven by this fear then that he probably denies Jesus here. His disobedience and lack of care in listening to Jesus led ultimately to this downfall. It's really sad to see this because we know that the other disciples already inside to see the proceeding without being harmed. And here Peter is still scared to even admit that he's a follower of Jesus. His fear has made him deny Jesus even when it's just a servant girl asking. Even more, he does this despite knowing the other disciple is inside safely and he's still okay to the point that he can ask the servants to do things for him. Now, I mentioned earlier that John could be the other disciple, and this could be why John's gospel had these extra bits of information about this night trial that are absent in the other gospels. It could be because he himself was there to witness these things, the other disciple. And there are, uh, these are, of course, speculations, and there's no point debating about it without clear proof from the text. So let's focus on what the text reveals clearly to us in verse 18, coming up next. We see here in verse 18, that the servants and officers have made a fire and because he was cold, Peter joined them to warm himself. And one can imagine the light from the fire revealing his face to others and we will see that this will have some consequences later on in this passage. But before we can get a chance to see what happens when Peter forgets his caution and seeks worldly comfort instead, the scene switches back to Jesus. We come to verse 19 and we see the high priest questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This title of high priest is given to Anas, despite the fact that actually he isn't one anymore. 
the author is clearly doing this to heighten our perception of the illegality of this gathering. The author wants to really rub it in that what is happening here is guided by evil and it's not a court of justice, it is a kangaroo court. If we pay attention to the structure of this narrative, we also will realize that the author have arranged the text in such a way that he wants us to see how Jesus responds regarding his disciples and later on how his disciples responds to Jesus as a contrast. Here we see Jesus does not clear cast blame on the disciples or reveal the identity. He refuses to answer the question directly and instead points out the hypocrisy in questioning him here illegally at night. So we come to verse 20 and we see that in the straightforward manner, Jesus answers the high priest, I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus makes it clear that he has always taught openly in the synagogues and in the temple as witnessed by all the Jews publicly. He had not taught any anti-God or anti-government things in secret as would be implied by the actions of the Sanhedrin. At this point, we can see the contrast, can't we? Jesus teaches in the light, whereas the Sanhedrin works in darkness. In verse 21, then Jesus throws a challenge. Why ask him? Just ask anyone about what he's been teaching. Indirectly, it is a challenge to the Pharisees. What have I been saying that led you to act this way towards me? Jesus is asking this to reveal their evil before all the listeners. Jesus reveals that he is innocent and these men are working with evil in their hearts. This response by Jesus therefore throws his innocence in their face and challenges their motivations publicly before everyone there. Of course, they do not have an answer to this. So we see in verse 22, they resorted to striking Jesus, to humiliate him, to hurt him. And then they scold him for his answer as if he has said something wrong. Further making it clear, this isn't about justice. It's about getting their way. We then see Jesus defending his innocence. If what he said is wrong, then they should present his teachings to argue about it. But why are these men striking him? when they cannot say anything wrong about Jesus. Having no response to Jesus and being thoroughly defeated by him, Anas binds Jesus as if he's a criminal and sends him to Caiaphas, the real high priest, for another trial. Perhaps hoping that Caiaphas will be able to better get Jesus killed without appearing as a fool and an evil man before others. Though these evil men have failed to show any cause for how they have treated Jesus, that ultimately didn't matter to Anas. And Jesus is to be persecuted regardless as they wanted him out of their way. This scene then shifts to Peter in verse 25. Peter, driven by his desire for comfort in that cold night, has stepped near the fire and as he warms himself, surrounded by the guards, he is noticed by the guards and servants and they're asking, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Having already denied Jesus the first time, when the stakes were even much lower, now that there were more people and thus a higher chance of trouble, Peter takes the easy way out. I'm not, he says, denying Jesus a second time. And then we see that the author ramps up the danger. In verse 26, 
One of the servants, who is a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Here finally is the real challenge. This should have been the question to really test his faith since, after all, this is a relative of a man harmed directly by Peter. If a relative of someone whose ear you chopped up asked this question, you'll be tempted to deny it too. Don't bluff. You know you will deny it. But of course, at this point, our expectation would be really low already. Since Peter had already denied Jesus twice, and so for the third time, he again denies Jesus. And at this moment, a rooster crowed, bringing to mind what Jesus had prophesied earlier to Peter. Back in John chapter 13, Jesus has already said that before the rooster crows, Peter would have denied Jesus three times and this is exactly what had happened. So as we come to the end of this passage, what have we learned from today's passage? Firstly, Peter gave in to his fears and even before there was a real challenge to his faith, he has failed. By the time the real meaningful challenge comes, he has already denied Jesus, conceded his faithfulness. When the real test comes, there's definitely no hope for him to respond rightly anymore. We too, when we deny Jesus for simple reasons, even before any form of serious persecutions, we'll have no hope of enduring when that persecution comes. Take this passage as a warning then, friends. If we are not faithful in the little things, then how can we be faithful in the bigger things? We already deny Jesus in the small things in our lives when we act unfaithfully as if Jesus is not our master. For example, when we refuse to tell others of the gospel when there is opportunity because we were more worried about being accepted rather than about proclaiming Jesus faithfully. We are denying Jesus as our Lord when we behave in an ungodly manner at work or amongst friends. We can argue and say, ah, that's different, it's an obedience thing. I never said I deny Jesus. But deep down, we know that at the very heart of it, we are only able to act like this because our hearts have already denied Jesus so that we can do what we want to do or say what we want to say. So take heed, friends. Our faithlessness in everyday things then sets us up to fail when we are finally challenged to hold on to Jesus. Don't harbor any fantasies about persevering in your faith when the world challenges you persecution, when you so freely deny Jesus for just the meager scraps that the world gives you. Secondly, we need to see there's a greater narrative here than just Peter denying Jesus. The passage seems to be a story of the victory of the darkness over the light. Evil men had their way with Jesus. They accused him wrongly, hurt him, gave him an unfair trial that will lead him to his death. Even among his dear disciples, all of them ran away. They were unable to do anything. His loudest and staunch disciple even flat out denied him again and again and again. It looks like darkness and evil wins here, doesn't it? But remember, everything is happening exactly as scripture has revealed. 
Jesus has predicted that this down to the very last moment and he told the disciples Jesus goes to the darkness of his own will even Caiaphas was unwittingly made into a prophet who speaks of the death of Jesus for the salvation of many revealing God's secret plan even Peter's denial of Jesus was known to God beforehand so what does this mean in all these things God is in full control yet Peter did not realize this and because of that he sought to deal with the problem with worldly ways by taking up the sword because of that he sought to deal with the fear of being exposed by lying and rejecting Jesus because of that he denies Jesus three times because he did not see that God has always been in control and placed his trust in God friends God is in control even when things looks bad in fact we know that when things are bad God is definitely in control because not a single hair can fall from our head without God knowing and we are his people whom he loves so how we respond to our fears and our worries must be tempered by that understanding if peter had trusted god his response would have been different ultimately this was god's plan to take this great evil and bring his plans to completion on that cross that jesus is now heading towards it is only after the cross that we are able to see that the darkness had not defeated the light but rather in its false victory actually the darkness and evil have been defeated once and for all in that same manner look to your trials and tribulations no matter what and know that god is in control better to die faithful to god than to live a hundred years after rejecting him so ask yourself do you trust in god and does your actions reflect that trust or are you responding to your fears as you make decisions on what to do and reveal that you don't actually trust god when i told you about my friend and how i downplayed going to church my relationship with him at work led to more and more compromise he will always try to look out for me by reminding me not to get brainwashed by those christians not to be so foolish to believe in their superstitions and every time he sent me articles either mocking christianity or praising atheism or he gave me advice it got harder and harder and harder to stand up and say hey jesus is my lord and savior and you need to listen to the gospel to save your own life because i had compromised in the easy conversation I cannot meaningfully change our conversation to bring it back to the gospel. I had compromised my testimony before him. To this day, I have not had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. I have failed to care for this man's soul. I was exposed that day as a hypocrite who goes to church but did not care for God. Till today, that memory stands as a reminder of how easy it is to fail when our hearts are more concerned about the world than learning to trust in God so friends if you 
are rejecting Jesus in thoughts, word or deed. If these affect your testimony before others, learn from my mistake. Repent. Seek to be faithful. It is not too late. Not even for Peter, as we will see as how he responds as we go through the rest of this series. Build up your trust in God so that your faith is unshakable. So that in all situations, you will act faithfully and proclaim Christ in all things. The only way to do this is to learn to hear his word in scripture day by day. And slowly incline your hearts towards trusting God more and more. So that you will be faithful even unto the very bitter end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we mourn the hardness of our heart. We mourn the times that, that we have given a bad testimony, when we have acted in a way that rejects Christ as our Lord. And Father, please forgive us. We seek to repent. We seek to do better. And we know that we cannot do this unless you are at work through your spirit. Have mercy on us, Father, for you are a merciful God. Shape us to love you rightly, to respond to you rightly. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.